0: A couple of months ago, Nigeria had one of the worst floods it's had in years. And one of our farmers was a beneficiary of our a loan from our partner. Because of how our products is designed, where insurance is mandated, the farmers that were affected by the floods were covered by insurance. So what that meant is that there wasn't a complete loss of income. And even though the yields due to the floods were lower, the farmers were still able to make a good income. We could see the direct impact on lives without farms to you, without, our product; those farmers would have lost income. That, for us, continues to be one of the highlights of how our product is really changing lives, because you can see the direct impact on the lives of the farmers we work with.
1: That's Aisha Rahim, co-founder of Farms to You, and you're listening to the Dig Down with me, Luke Nodia. Aisha and her team started out addressing challenges facing smallholder farmers. Then they discovered the critical role buyers and aggregators play in a smallholder farmer's success, so they started solving problems there too. The majority of farmers on the African continent are smallholder farmers, and their produce is largely inaccessible to buyers at large companies who need raw materials for products, to the extent that buyers are importing produce even though, if aggregated, local producers are growing enough to meet their demand. Farms2U went through Techstars in 2021, and in addition to the Techstars investment, they've been backed by both Catalyst Fund and Lofty Inc. The journey ahead is an interesting one, with Farms2U expanding their footprint in West and East Africa. That's the super short view of Farms2U. Let's dig in. Welcome Aisha to the dig down. I'm very pleased to have you here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I'm keen to get into a lot of things but maybe to begin could you explain kind of what farms to you is and what's made you want to build this
0: sure so farms to you so we're an enterprise that is addressing the supply chain challenges in agriculture operating in nigeria and kenya our vision really is how do we create seamlessness in the transaction between the farmer and buyers. So buyers of um, farm produce like processing companies, FMCGs like Nestle and co. It's something that we've realized is a very broken system, which is why Africa is the sole net food importing continent despite having so many resources. How did I get here? I mean, I have a finance background, did economics, worked in asset management, corporate law for a bit, had no prior experience in agriculture, other than working with a company called John Lewis, well, Waitrose, which is part of John Lewis, which is a food retailer. I really had no prior experience in agriculture. Coming into this sector was really driven by a personal health experience that changed my relationship with food where a health scare made me be more conscious of what I ate and the nutrients I get from my food. And I've only ever lived in Lagos and London long-term. And by long-term, I mean more than a year. And through this experience, I realized how food... I always use banana as a good example. Bananas in England taste bland it's like you might as well be eating cardboard paper whereas when i go to lagos it's like i can actually taste that i'm eating something and that got me to start really investigating okay why does our food taste differently and they started learning about all the chemicals in our food like aspartame which is almost in every processed food and how these foreign things in our food are not good for us that doesn't give us the nutrients our body needs so how are we able to fight against health issues so yeah, that that is what we do at Farms to You, and the journey for me getting to you know building something like this, where the food system is clearly broken, and what we look to do is how do we fix that broken food system?
1: Could you expand on who the customers of Farms to You are and the pain points that they are facing?
0: So our primary customers are buyers, so FMCG companies, processing companies and lenders, so providers of capital to folks that are in the agricultural sector. Those are our core commercial customers, but at the baseline, our farmers really is who we're building for. For the buyers, we're solving the problem that they have of you know how to accurately procure products for their processing needs. If I give an example of Nestle, for instance, there's a product called Golden Board in Nigeria. And for uh, a Nestle procurement manager, for instance, to be able to fulfill his or her Q2 production targets, they need a minimum quantity of raw material for that product. If I stick with Golden Morn, that raw material will be maize. So say, for instance, I'm a procurement manager. I want 100,000 units of Golden Morn by Q2 2023. It means that I need a certain tonnage of maize in March 2023 for me to fulfill those targets. But what we find is that that is not a very seamless process for the buyer to go through. As a procurement manager, I don't know where I can get that quantity of products. I don't even know if that quantity of products is available because there is such a broken pipeline between the producers of raw agricultural produce and those users of raw agricultural produce that we're then addressing, okay, how do we bridge that gap to identify, okay, there's 50 tons in in this area, there's another 50 tons in this area, how is it aggregated so that the procurement manager can receive all the products they need for their production pipeline? So that's what we do for the buyers. The important thing there is for for the farmers, the farmers also struggle to sell directly to those sort of large buyers like Nestle. Because Nestle has, like I said, a tonnage of hundreds of thousands of tons as their minimum order quantity. One smallholder farmer can't fulfill that order. So it's a case then that how do you group farmers so that they can be able to serve that buyer? So that's the service we're providing to the grower, being the farmer, as a consequence of you know, having the buyer as our primary customer. The second customer is the lender and, and by the way that what i just describe is one of our primary products called the enterprise resource planning platform essentially a procurement resource planning platform that helps essentially provide predictability of sourcing requirements, the predictable pricing, predictable delivery timeline as well.
1: Can I quickly jump in? So does that mean that in the absence of farms to you, these FMCGs or the the buyers would only be able to buy from large scale farmers? Would they not be able to access small scale farmers at all? Or are they currently accessing small scale farmers, but it's maybe a really painful process?
0: So it's more so it's a mix of both but it's more so the the former where they're working with the larger farmers and also working with a stakeholder player that is called an aggregator it's a common term in the sub-saharan african agricultural sector where an aggregator is usually also a farmer but it's essentially someone that is buying up products from all of the smallholder farmers so that that minimum order quantity can be fulfilled but of course, capital becomes a constraint because if you're buying from several other farmers, how much capital do you actually have as an aggregator to be able to fund those transactions? So that's what we find that the buyers aren't able to deal directly with the smallholder farmer. It's too expensive for them to do that. But even if they're then dealing with aggregators, they find that, OK, those aggregators, can they actually fulfill the, the order requirements because of their capital constraints. And if they're going directly to the smallholder farmer, that is an investment that the buyer has to make. So for instance, there are a few buyers like Diageo, the Guinness brand specifically in Nigeria, that have created outgrower schemes where they worked with smallholder farmers. But essentially this is moving them away from their core focus of being a processing company that essentially makes beer stout. And this is where Farmstreet is actually allowing them focus on their primary goal of being a processing company producing end products for consumers like you and I, where where as farms to you are providing them with a predictable pipeline of sourcing needs essentially.
1: Okay and then I think the problems faced by farmers seems fairly clear to me it's it would essentially be that they would a smallholder farmer would have a limited offering set of Places that they can sell their produce at and the presence of farms to you increases the opportunity for them to sell their produce, right?
0: Yeah, so it's increasing the opportunity for them to sell their products closer to the final buyer. Because, of course, when you have so many folks in between the farmer and the buyer and, you know, some are creating values, most aren't. The margin that ends up going to the farmer continues to shrink. And the idea is how do you create as direct a line between the farmer and the buyer so that they can capture as much value from that transaction as they can.
1: Okay, does strengthening that link with the current farmer customers that you have, have you seen much change in what farmers choose to grow based on the stronger link with the buyers or do they mostly continue growing what they would have been growing before?
0: So, and, and that's a great question. We are starting to see how we can influence what the farmer wants to grow, because, uh, for instance, we had a buyer sometime last year at the start of the Russia-Ukraine war, who was interested in sourcing wheat. And wheat can be grown on essentially, in terms of like land requirements and nutrient requirements, is very similar to rice. So, someone who is growing rice can also very easily pivot to growing wheat. But wheat is much more expensive to grow than rice. So what we find is that insofar as that we can provide the farmers a guarantee that, you know, you actually have a market here, we can tie your production activities to a purchase order from a buyer. You're then incentivized that, okay, I can spend more on producing a more expensive product that would end me more profit insofar as I have guaranteed that taking that risk would be worthwhile. So yeah, we certainly see that with this system that we're building, buyers can now better predict what the producers should be making because producers shouldn't be producing what nobody wants to buy anyway. So it makes sense that you should start aligning supply with demand where what is being demanded by the buyers is what is directly driving what the producers are going to produce and hence supply them.
1: Okay. And you've mentioned before that farms to is not an agri-tech business. Um, and I think what you've been speaking to makes it quite clear. I definitely, when I first looked at it, I, I thought I was looking at an agri-tech, but it's obviously supply chain. Is it finance at all? Are you helping buyers or farmers with the money needed to purchase things, suppliers for farming, produce?
0: So capital is certainly a key component in what we're providing. Of course, as mentioned, the enterprise resource planning platform, which is essentially fulfilling the sourcing needs of buyers, is our primary product. But as mentioned, you know, there are some products that are more expensive to grow than others. Um, Aggregators also have a challenge in working capital. So we very quickly realized by building in this space that capital is a real need. Now. Looking to lenders, lenders like banks, corporate banks or microfinance institutions that essentially have capital, they want to provide as loans to borrowers. One of the key blockers where we don't have a huge volume of loans to in, in the agricultural sector is because of the ability to risk assess who is a good borrower versus who is not. Because the system for lending is primarily built for formal workers. By formal workers, I mean a 9 to 5 white-collar job person that is having a regular monthly salary and, you know, has pay slips and, you know, walks into a bank says, I want to buy a car. Bank says, how much is your monthly salary? Based on that, you repay be this certain period of time. That does not represent 90% of borrowers on the continent because 90% of borrowers are in the informal sector. The informal sector does not have predictable salaries, doesn't have monthly salaries and the agricultural sector represents a a huge component of that informal sector so we then realized that okay the key thing is to bridge the gap that lenders cannot bridge themselves which is how do they have better visibility of the risk level of the folks that they're giving loans to to tell the difference between a a a good um borrower that is a farmer versus a a bad borrower that's a farmer is looking at things like what is that person's yields? Like how much are they going to harvest at the end of the season versus the market average? Do they have a guaranteed off-taker? That is, once they do harvest, do they actually have a buyer that has already committed to buying what they're growing? Do they have insurance, multi-corporal insurance in the instance where there's flood, there's rain, there's fire, they're um, compensated by the insurance company where the um, financial, so the financial institution or whoever the lender is, is not bearing that risk these are more pertinent variables to look at when assessing the risk of a farmer and this is what we built out at farms to you and a product called a digital lending platform where we allow lenders to better understand the risk level of the borrowers starting with farmers so currently we're through our platform farmers can receive loans um from our lending partners of which we currently have two in nigeria including people africa and are looking to onboard a few more and also in kenya we're looking at lenders to onboard in kenya as well and that's what we're essentially providing them now whilst we're just focusing on the farmers now we of course see that there's a need for the aggregators to also access working capital Even the buyers, because as I mentioned, as a procurement manager, you have tons of orders. There is a cost as well to making the payments of those orders. Um, What we actually find is that sometimes it takes six to eight weeks for a Nestle or a flour mills of Nigeria, you know, all these buyers to essentially pay for orders that they've received. And that's not because they don't have the money, but it's just because of the operational processes they have. So there's also a trade finance value there that can be given to buyers where payment processes are instantaneous, where, you know, once a farmer has processed an order with the buyer, it's been accepted at the buyer's warehouse even though the buyer's payment process might take three days, might take six weeks, the farmer is receiving the payments right away. So funding that gap between when the farmer receives the payment and when the buyer makes the payment as well is another value that we see that would continue consistent transactions. Because one thing that we've definitely found out in this supply chain dynamic is that working capital is locked. And when I say working capital is locked, so for instance, six to eight weeks, you've not received payment from a buyer. You don't have money to to make another transaction to go back to the farm to produce. But if that working capital is continued to be flowed through easily, it means that we can have a good cycle of consistent production, thereby creating more value and uh, more capacity in the industry at large.
1: And that's an intentional practice on on the part of the buyers, right? I mean, buyers tend to squeeze buyers for 30 or 60 or 90 days. So I'm guessing they're not going to pay for that. You would charge either the aggregator or the farmer for the access to the the working capital, the bridging finance. So,
0: So I wouldn't outrightly say they're not going to pay for that. I think that's something that has to be negotiated. We don't. So currently the finance is with our farmers. We haven't extended finance to aggregators or to buyers. But that's something that definitely has to be negotiated. Bear in mind that it's becoming increasingly competitive for buyers to be able to source their products. So if you want to have credible pipeline of products for your processing needs, it's in your interest to ensure that you're providing competitive payment timelines. You're also providing competitive pricing because it means that you know, if you're not providing competitive pricing or p- payment cycles, someone would look elsewhere. Some folks might do 30 days payment cycles, but if they're going to do that, they often reduce the price or pay more competitive pricing. So it's about having that balance of, you know, are you trying to optimise for payment cycle? Are you trying to optimise for price? Are you trying to optimise for quality? And the buyer would certainly, is in their interest to make that investment to ensure that the farmer is well rewarded.
1: Okay, I see. So this journey of discovering the set of offerings and farms to you sounds very interesting. It sounds like you've discovered a lot more about the space as you've been operating. You've been operating since 2019, right?
0: Correct, yes.
1: Now, having been through this, what's your thought around how a startup discovers what it's meant to do? Because I'm guessing, you you started in 2019 with a certain vision of what you're setting out to do, and then over time... I mean, I'm not going to use the word pivot, but rather adjusted and discovered different kinds of things to do.
0: Yeah. So at the core, as I mentioned, why did I start this? I started this because of a personal health experience where I felt like the food systems are broken. And how do we create more efficiency in the food systems? So that vision has always remained the same. And when I reached out with Timmy, to Timmy, our co-founder and also a CTO on that opportunity, he also shared the same sentiment of how do we create better food systems that are optimizing for nutritional value of food, reducing food waste. So that has always remained the same but the how of you know fixing the food system is something that we continue to improve on and continue to use the build measure learn cycle to see okay how are we going to achieve this and it's very important for us to continue to incorporate those learnings in what we're doing so for instance we started we we always started this journey with a smallholder farmer because smallholder farmers practice regenerative farming at scale so when we're talking about climate change cost of you know regenerative agriculture. The smallholder farmer has a very important role to play in the sense that by default of you know how their processes are structured, they tend to practice regenerative farming at scale compared to commercial farmers who have big tractors, which we've seen hasn't done very well in terms of soil erosion or you know massive spraying which you know has a, a negative impact not just on on health but also you know on the global climate so we've seen that the smallholder farmer plays an important role and that was who we initially focused on where we're building around the smallholder farmer but we very quickly realized that while the smallholder farmer is an important player, the buyers in this in the process, because the buyers who are sourcing from those smallholder farmers play an even more important role in the sense that, okay, what are the pain points of these buyers? The pain point is that They can't source in a timely manner they can't so sometimes you actually find that some uh, of these fmcg companies processing companies that are local in nigeria kenya and the rest of sub-saharan africa tend to import products because they can't source for what they need sufficiently locally and that's quite a missed opportunity because there is capacity to produce these volumes that they need locally so I think the key thing in terms of transitioning our learning, like the key learning is how you know, the buyer plays a very important role and where you know, solving for their pain points directly benefits the smallholder farmer who we started building for at the onset of this
1: journey. Okay, very interesting. So uh, what I'm hearing is that you're, you're neither attached to the solution nor attached to the problem. You've been, from the start, focused on a specific customer, which is the smallholder farmer, and then the rest has been discovery. Discovering who the other customers would be, being open to discovering different problems that your initial customer faces and additional problems that your subsequent customers have faced, and then discovering what the solutions should be.
0: Exactly that. And, you know, that approach of learning was very important, not coming from a agricultural background because the first year, first twelve to eighteen months of, of this business was basically research and development, working to understand the space, understand the challenges, and not really going into the market thinking that we have all the answers because we don't. It takes collaboration, understanding what the pain points of these smallholder farmers are and you know their partners, you know, before we actually start building what we think is the right solution. So yeah, that's correct. We've always had that vision of you know, the smallholder farmer plays a very important role in ensuring sustainable food systems, because apart from them producing the bulk of food on the African continent, upwards of 70% of food produced in Africa is by the smallholder farmer. They also play an important role in ensuring climate sustainability, because we have to produce more food than we have in the past, because our population continues to grow, and we need to produce more food in a sustainable manner that better manages our resources. So that means we have to think about how to, you know, as an alternative to using tractors, how do we use mulching to prepare land? And all these other more sustainable um, practices, which are already core part and parcel of how smallholder farmers grow. So how do you make them more efficient, more profitable so that they continue to scale those processes Of regenerative farming, ensuring that for the buyers, they're also guaranteed the volumes that they need for their own production requirements as well.
1: Okay, there are a couple of things that I want to squeeze in before we run out of time, and so I'm going to try get us through it all. You started in 2019, and then in 2021, you went through textiles. What was the experience in textiles like? What are some of the the valuable things that you gained from Techstars?
0: Sure. So, yeah, as you rightly mentioned, we're in Techstars in 2021, specifically from September to December 2021. And uh, Techstars really gave us the structure we needed, you know, giving us better direction as to how to think of building a business. What uh, structures do you need to have in place? How do you think about your customers, how do you think of your a sustainable business model? So textiles was very important in creating structure and helping us think thinking about the operational sustainability of our business. It was post-textiles we started using OKRs, so objectives and key results, which helps you essentially position your company and your team to think about what goals you want to work towards. Beyond that, we through the Techstars program, we also got to work with the Nature Conservancy, one of the largest regenerative organizations globally. So that was very important as well, because as I mentioned, one of the key reasons that we focus on smallholder farmers is not just because of the importance they play in terms of the volume of our food they produce, but the impacts they play in terms of climate resilience and clim- and you know, mitigating climate risks because they produce food in a more in a more sustainable way, essentially. And working with the Nature Conservancy really was able to help us explore that opportunity further. So, in all, all in all, it was a really great experience. But yeah, those are some key takeaways from having worked with Textiles and the Nature Conservancy, and of course, it was our first external investment as well. So that was good.
1: So, structure partnerships. Do you? feel that going through textiles changed the conversations you had with subsequent investors
0: i would say enhance as opposed to change so it was just helping us think more intelligently about how we tell our story i think our story has always been focused on you know the africa story of creating better food systems for africa because whilst we're in nigeria and kenya nigeria being on West Africa hub, Kenya being our East Africa hub. Our vision is to really provide this value across sub-Saharan Africa. So that has always been important. But yeah, it definitely helped us better position in an optimal way what we are building for.
1: Okay. Are there any interesting lessons in storytelling that come to mind or any mistakes you may have been making before or enhancements that you had to the storytelling process?
0: Sure. So we're always learning, not perfect at this. And I think, you know, post this call, you know, I I probably would learn even more things. But one of the key takeaways is different audiences want to hear different things. And that said, while different audiences want to hear different things, you have to make sure your story remains authentic. So not changing your story, but more so ensuring that you understand who your audience is and how they will connect to your story. To put into context, like you're speaking to investors and investor wants to understand how do they make money out of this business? Now, impact might be part of your story, but what that investor is really asking for is what's the business model? Whereas you can be speaking to somebody else who is all about impact. Yes, you can make profit, but they're really more concerned about how are you thinking about gender equality? How are you thinking about zero child labor? And bringing out those parts that would really connect with your audience is a really important part of storytelling. I also think that we should always think of impact when we're thinking of profitable businesses. Impact has always been part of our story, but I think it's something that I've seen that more needs to be done because the reason why we have such a terrible climate crisis is because most businesses weren't thinking about impact years ago. I think we shouldn't run into that same trap of just thinking of profit and numbers, but really thinking about the communities where you're operating in, the team that you're working with, how are you changing lives beyond the financial bit? Thinking social demographics and all these other things. So, our story has continued to evolve and we continue to see how we uh, tell a clear story. The reason why, so, you know, folks would often say agritech, and I'm glad you see the supply chain element because, you know, folks would think, okay, they're a technology company working in agriculture, they must be agritech. But we are addressing a supply chain issue in agriculture so that is the supply chain issue that we're addressing first so trying to continue to tell a clearer story is something that we continue to learn on an ongoing basis and it's also from you know how we see our products impacting the lives of our users so be it farmers be it buyers that also continues to help us evolve our story and our identity
1: okay so at least among the lessons in storytelling one of them would be um true to the story don't change the story depending on who you're talking to but adjust what you're leading with based on the audience and who you're speaking to that makes a lot of sense for anyone preparing to apply to Techstars what should they have in mind to get the most out of it going through uh, an upcoming cohort
0: yeah sure and beyond Techstars there are also lots of other programs as well there is the Catalyst Fund. There is um, Catapult Africa. There are a few others. I think when you're going for these accelerator programs, it's very important to immerse yourself in it. Really go in there, learning. Think of yourself as a sponge and be ready to soak up all the, you know, all the knowledge. That said, you know, have some sort of filter where some things that people might suggest to you might not necessarily apply. And while you might be speaking to folks that have built businesses before, our experience you are the expert of your business nobody else knows your vision as well as you so i think it's important for you to always have that confidence but always also be le- ready to learn because i learn the most from criticisms i always look for feedback and even if i don't get something i ask why didn't i get it and you that's for me to learn on how to be better next time. So those are the key things I'll say when you're applying for programs like that. They're super competitive. So, you know, put your all in making an application. But, you know, when you get in, of course, immerse yourself and be ready to learn.
1: Okay, excellent. I think the confidence piece is interesting. Balance between choosing what to listen to and what to change and what to, uh, I guess, be courageous and chase is an interesting one. So I'm also interested in... Growth. What have some of the challenges for growth been, and uh, what have some of the successful growth strategies been?
0: You know, I'll tell you maybe something that is cliche, but it's the team. Because we're a team of eight now, and it's very important you, every single one of those eight people are carrying their own weight and are the right fit for our team. I say that because, in terms of growth strategy, it doesn't come from just one person. The CEO might have the vision and share the vision, but in actually implementing it on the ground, you need every single person on that team to be able to implement it. I think team has been one of the important things to get right. We've been very intentional on culture from the start. It's something that was amplified by tech stars because, you know, their motto is team, team, team. Anyone that gets in is really because you had a strong team. The idea might be good, but you know, if you don't have the team, it's going nowhere. But empowering your team to feel like they can make decisions is also another important thing that we found that the more we've empowered our team, the more we've gotten the right fit, we've been able to implement our audacious growth targets. So, yeah, in terms of what has worked well versus what hasn't worked well, I know that when we haven't necessarily met our growth targets is because we didn't have the right team fit. We needed to get people that were more ambitious, people that were more, you know, not necessarily seeing a clear path and figuring out how do you, you know, clear a path and create a path when none has existed. Those sort of attitudes have been very important in, in the sense of us achieving those core targets. I think also understanding your customers, your users. As I mentioned, our understanding of who our users are. What our users' pain points are is something that continues to to develop because you always have to keep talking to your customers to understand what their pain points are and how your solution is addressing those pain points. It's not enough to assume what the pain point is. You have to continue testing, proving it in the market, and building around those because otherwise you're building something that is not addressing a real need for for the people you're working with.
1: Okay, so it's team culture and, and understanding your customers. Team and culture makes a lot of sense because it kind of speaks to the the engine, you know, the the thing that that makes it all happen, and making sure that that's strong enough to grow and and to make it all happen. And then the understanding customers is an interesting thing to mention because I guess that the enhanced understanding helps you change what you do in the right way so that you have a better product market fit, so that growth is easier rather than just like brute forcing growth.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You don't want want to have to beg people to come to you. They They should see your product and be like, yes, I need your product.
1: Right. Okay, cool. Story time. I'm really keen in a customer success story that you may have had, like something that you've done for a customer that's been very inspiring and maybe has been quite a rewarding moment in reflecting on what it is that you're building.
0: A couple of months ago nigeria had one of the worst floods it's had in years and one of our farmers was a beneficiary of our loan from our partner pivo and because of how our products is designed where insurance is mandated the farmers that were affected by the floods were covered by insurance because insurance was mandated as part of the loan so what that meant is that you know first of all there wasn't a complete loss of income and even though the yields due to the floods were so the, the harvests was lower than what was expected, the farmers were still able to make a good income because we had put in place safeguards through insurance, through the loan products, through ensuring that they had a guaranteed taker to ensure that the income of that farmer those farmers rather were protected so that's something that was really really important an important win for us because we could see the direct impact on lives because without farms to you without our product those farmers would have lost income for you know the previous um, farming season which is uh, three to four months because of floods that they had no control over so that for us continues to be one of the highlights of how our product is really changing lives because you can see the direct impact on the lives of the farmers we work with.
1: Okay I think it's awesome that the customer is so central to what it is that you're doing it is fantastic that you're having such awesome impact on people's lives through a sustainable business model and then as we wrap it up what are you excited about for the coming year for farms to you? what's on the cards?
0: Sure. So we're super excited about, you know, some of our new investors like Catalyst Fund, Lofty Inc., who are building side by side with us with what we're doing. We're super excited with the team that we have. We have the best energy we've had since we founded this team. And we're super excited for the problems that we're solving. They're hard problems, but we know that they're problems that if solved have exponential benefits on the continent. So it's hard work, but trying to have fun with it. And that's why for us it's important to have the right partners and in investors, the right partners in, in a team to keep building.
1: Great. Well, Aisha, I really enjoyed speaking to you. I've definitely learned a few things from you. You've given me some things to think about, and I look forward to catching up with you again in the future.
0: Yeah, I've also enjoyed speaking to you, Luke, and I I look forward to catching up again.